a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line, Ships Registry, The Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Later in the pod, you'll hear an interview Tommy did with Matt Rivets from Sleeping Giants. We're also going to take a deep dive uh, into the results of Tuesday's primary and special elections. Um, also, there's a new Pod Save the World out featuring an interview with Isabel Young, a correspondent for Vice on HBO. Tommy talked with her about her recent reporting trips to Raqqa, Syria, and Yemen. Isabel interviewed two of the most cruel and notorious ISIS terrorists in Raqqa and tells Tommy what it's like to sit across from someone that evil. Um, you'll also want to check out the new episode of Pod Save the People, where you can hear an interview with Beto O'Rourke. And on this week's episode of The Wilderness, we talk about the politics of immigration and what Democrats should say and do about the issue. This is one of my favorite episodes. Some of the people who've been on the front lines of the immigration fights for the last few decades tell some very moving stories about the fight for a better immigration policy. Um, Dan, how you doing? You're uh, you're on vacation right now. You're you're the only member of Pod Save America who, when he's on vacation, still does the pod. You're making us all look bad. Well, I'm only I am on vacation. I'm in the uh, the state uh, home state of past great President Barack Obama and home state of future great President Brian Schatz. Uh, You're in Kenya. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I am in Kenya via Indonesia. Yes, um, <laughs> I am doing the pod in part because uh, I took many weeks off in the back a few months ago, and you guys had your vacations, and we had an election, and I thought it'd be fun to talk about an election, which is always better and more interesting than talking about Trump's tweets. But we will talk about yes, Trump's tweets are, about the election, just to be clear, in case anyone is here for the Trump tweet content. We are both huge election nerds. Uh, I'm excited about to talk about it as well. Um, so there were elections in Ohio, Missouri, Michigan, Kansas, and Washington State on Tuesday. Let's start with the special election in Ohio's 12th congressional district, which remains too close to call right now. Democrat Danny O'Connor is trailing Republican Troy Balderson by about... 1,700 votes. Actually, right now it's 1,500 votes because there was apparently a counting error in Franklin County. Um, and there's about 3,400 provisional ballots and up to 5,000 absentee ballots left to be counted by the August 24th deadline. If O'Connor wins roughly 60% of those outstanding ballots, he'd take the seat. If not, he will have come less than 1% shy of winning a seat that Trump and Romney won by 11 points a seat that Democrats haven't won since the 1980s. Dan, do you see this result as good news, bad news, or eh, whatever? Somewhere between good news and eh, whatever. And I say that okay. because you got to look at these things in two ways, right? Ultimately, the goal of campaigns is to win seats in Congress. And we have not yet done that. I mean, if we're being totally uh, frank and honest with the listeners, it's a, it'd be really hard to have those sorts of margins in the provisional ballots and to make up that uh, make up that deficit uh, out of that many votes. Yeah. Uh, but 
we got to count the votes. We got to see how it goes. The at no news part is it tells us something we already knew, which is that Democrats seem well positioned to take the House and win elections up and down the ballot. And we've now looked at uh, special elections in California, the South and Georgia, Pennsylvania, deep red states like uh, Kansas, and then here in uh, in sort of the bellwether state of presidential elections, historically Ohio, and they all tell you the same thing. There is a consistent message about Democratic enthusiasm trumping, uh, no pun intended, uh, where the Republican voters are. So that that is a good positive takeaway from this, but ultimately you want to have more people in Congress. But even if we had won this one, it's Daniel O'Connor would be running again, as he will be in a few months. Right. Yeah, that was my first thought about this is, these two are going to face face each other again in a couple months. Uh, Danny O'Connor or Troy Balderson, more likely at this point, Troy Balderson, whoever goes to Congress, not going to do much, not many votes in the next couple months. Um, so, you know, there's focusing a lot on the race for a uh, very little time period before they face each other again. Look, obviously there are no moral victories here. Um, you know, my dad always says there's no such thing as close except in uh, horseshoes and hand grenades. Um <laughs> But depending on what rating you use, we also know that there are between 60 and 70 Republican-held seats that lean more Democratic than the Ohio 12th. Um, there are more than 100 less Republican seats than the district Connor Lamb won in Pennsylvania. And of course, as we all know, we need 23 seats to take the House. So, I mean, my thought is, look, if, if we are out there losing special elections that are um, you know, R plus one, R plus two, R plus three, R plus four, I'd be worried. I, I think those that's bad news for Democrats. Those are the kind of seats Democrats absolutely need to win to take back the House. This is an R plus seven district. And I should say, in case people don't know, when I say R plus seven, this is the um, Cook Partisan Voting Index, which means that an R plus seven district means that the district voted an average of seven points more Republican than the rest of the country did um, over the last two presidential elections. So that's how they tabulate this stuff. So this is a, it's a very deeply Republican district. And our path to the House, taking back the House, probably runs through districts that are um, much less Republican than that, right? I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that is very clear. And if we look at these elections in two ways, like one, how does it affect the balance of the House in the immediate term? And what does it tell you about November? And the sign, the signs are good, but there's, you know, I guess there are what, like 90 some days left till the midterm elections. And so, but that is a long time with a lot of work to do to make that come to fruition because we do have to be honest about something. Even though these were all hard races in really hard districts we had no business competing in, we still only won one of the nine contested special elections uh, that, right. that took place. And so that, that is something. And you can say that, that, Maybe we would have won in better districts, but we didn't. We did not. At least in this case, I don't want to. Like this has not been called yet, but we have not yet won this district. And if we had won it, that would have been uh, better in the short term. It would have meant we needed uh, one less seat, uh, essentially, to we steal one, beat one less incumbent, and it would have sent a. It would have just been very enjoyable to watch the utter complete meltdown of Republicans. This is sort of like. 
it, this is almost like a tie. Nothing changed in anyone's perception right. of anything from Monday night to Wednesday morning. It's sort of this is what we thought the the political landscape looked like. This is what we how many seats the Demo- we think the Democrats need to win. Here's where we are. It's also it's a good reminder that Democrats cannot be complacent that every single fucking vote matters in these elections, that a lot of these districts could come down to a couple hundred votes, a couple thousand votes, and that means that like every phone call matters, every time you knock on a door it matters, every dollar you can give to these races matters. Um, you know, of course, Danny O'Connor was way outspent by uh, Republican-aligned groups uh, helping Troy Balderson. Um, so, you know, this is going to be a... a fight every single day from now until November to win the House. It's just not going to happen automatically because we think that Donald Trump screwed up or said something wrong or fucking sent out a bad tweet or whatever might have happened. Like, these are districts, and when you're trying to, you know, these are districts that don't really change too much from election to election. And even with this huge swing towards the Democrats, as we've seen in all these special elections, we're also seeing that in some of these Republican districts that are very gerrymandered, um, you can get close, but not quite all the way there. Yeah, and you know one of the arguments that you know sort of the ne- like the negative spin against Republicans in this is they basically had to spend like throw every resource they possibly had. You know, Mike Pence, Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., which I can't imagine is an actual resource, but uh, <laughs> all uh, you know, all this money, all these ads, and that that is not replicable in 70 other districts. And that is true. It is not recordable in 70 other districts, but there is a pretty bottomless well of Republican billionaire money hoping to protect their tax cuts. And so the Republicans will be able to, the outside group, even though Democratic challengers have done a great job outraising Republicans, the Republican groups will be able to spend a lot of money in the, mo- in the most targeted districts and dramatically outspend. So they have money. We have enthusiasm and organization, and we have to pair those two things together by getting every single person, not just to vote, but to volunteer, make phone calls, et cetera, as you were saying. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw the other day that Sheldon Adelson just like cut another thirty million dollar check to for the for Republicans to take to keep the House, which you know could happen any number of times, whether it's Sheldon Adelson or some other asshole between now and uh, in November. Um, what, if anything, does the race tell you about what kind of voters are trending Democrat and Republican? Um, and and sort of the shift from 2016 to 2018. I know you mentioned that, you know, turnout was obviously way up in the more Democratic areas and uh, way down in the more Republican areas, or at least up by not as much in Republican areas. But um, what did did you see in the race about, you know, sort of the kind of voters that are trending toward each party? Well, we're continuing to see Democratic strength in the suburbs, right? And that is is Mm -hmm. what has helped us remain competitive in all, in districts that we should never have a chance in. It is what gives Democrats great hope and about taking the houses that there are all these districts that, uh, that are in suburban urban or suburban areas that are either the districts that Clinton won in 2016 or districts that are much closer that where you've seen a shift where you were seeing Republicans, uh, underperform as they did in 2016 in suburban areas, yet still overperform in rural and blue-collar, so rural, exur, exurban and rural areas. Now, the Democratic overperformance in 
uh, suburban areas is exceeding the amount of Republican overperformance in the in in the rural areas. But still, we we're gonna have if we if we want to go into uh, 2000 election day 2018 with as wide a playing field as possible. We need to ha- we need to have more districts in play than just the the ones that are primarily suburban. We could if we run the table on the suburban ones, we will take the house. But if you want to have a true wave, we have to put some of these other districts, whether they're ones in Ohio, other parts of Pennsylvania, upstate New York, in play. But and that means winning back either getting people to turn out in these districts who did not turn out in 2014 or 2000 or maybe even 2016. And uh, getting some voters who either voted third party or, or reluctantly voted for Trump to actually just pull the lever for a Democrat. Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in Ohio 12, in Franklin County, which was the most affluent, well-educated, diverse part of the district, uh, Obama won that by three points. Hillary won by 18 points. And Danny O'Connor last night won it by 30 points um, in the most rural areas, you saw Balderson sort of like, you know, almost, keywords almost, match Trump's margins, um, which were huge in those rural areas. The interesting part was Delaware County um, in, the, in the Ohio 12th, which is also well-educated, but more of an exurb, like further from Columbus. And Danny O'Connor made some gains there, but not enough. That's sort of where he fell a little short. And I found this fascinating from Ron Brownstein um, writing in The Atlantic today. He said 45% of college-educated white men disapproved of Trump uh, in the Ohio 12th, but O'Connor only won 36% of them. 60% of college-educated white women disapproved of Trump, but he only won 50% of them. And yet, O'Connor got almost all of the non-college-educated white voters who disapproved of Trump. So these non-college educated white voters who are like so heavily for Trump, if they did if they did disapprove of Trump, these Obama Trump voters, then, you know, he got their votes. But there are still this set of country club Republicans (laughs) um, who have not left the party, who may not like Trump, but they're hard for Democrats to reach and they still seem to be voting Republican. Um, What do you make of that? And what do you think that tells us about you know, democratic message, who we should be trying to reach, et cetera. It's a couple things, but it's, it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating statistic. And it does, I think, speak a little bit to why presidential elections and congressional elections are different. Mm. Like those voters may be actually more available to a democratic nominee in 2020 against Trump than they are to a, to Danny O'Connor, for instance, right? Where, because, like this is sort of where political tribalism and party identity are so strong where these, like I would guess that the people that Ron Brown's you're talking about are very consistent voters. They've been voting for Republicans in Congress as long as they've been voting. And so to step away from that and vote for a Democrat is very challenging, even if they don't like Trump. Right. And, and that, so finding ways to message those voters is very interesting and very challenging because what you don't want to do like, and this is in no way an argument, for, in fact, it's an argument against this idea that we should, uh, you know, sort of tack to the middle to try to get these voters. That is not the way to do it. I think the way to do it is to run harder against the Trump Republican c- culture corruption in Washington. And you have to do a better job of tying the Republicans and Trump together 
if you want to get those voters. I don't I think you should the same economic populist arguments that are actually, I think, working not just with millennials and the Obama coalition, but I think also have real currency with with these quote unquote blue collar voters in these more exurban rural areas are, is the same message will work with these people. You won't get all of them, but you, but you do have to make the Republicans part of the Trump problem and not somehow separate. And this is, you know, this is a little bit of a uh, corollary to the challenge that Obama had, the congressional Democrats had when Obama was running and not on the ballot was even though Obama was clearly a Democrat, clearly supporting Democrats, he seemed somewhat removed from politics as usual. Maybe it was his personality, his message. He mm-hmm. looked and acted different than uh, than most politicians, and and so it was he had limited coattails when not on the ballot. And it may be that in some of these areas, Trump has limited drag because they don't really think of him as a Republican. They think of him as you know sort of this party crasher. And I think we have to do more to tie them together. And when we talk about uh, Chris Collins getting arrested today, uh, I think you, there, you can see some seeds of what kind of message you, w- you would want to Yeah, and look, there's there. some evidence that um, Democrats not trying to target their message towards some of these, like, you know, more affluent, college-educated Republicans instead have a more populist argument sort of targeted at Trump's corruption and economic populism might work. Um, Greg Sargent in the Washington Post today noted that O'Connor actually outperformed Clinton by small but non-trivial margins in the more blue-collar small-town counties. And O'Connor's pollster, Jason McGrath, said that what helped in some of those counties, just taking Balderson's margin down just a little bit, was his candidate's focus on jobs, health care, and infrastructure spending. So I do think that there's evidence that some of these and and I saw this when I was um, doing the wilderness and spoke to experts during that podcast too, that some of these Obama-Trump voters who still identify as Democrats tend to be more liberal, more progressive on economic issues and, by the way, some other cultural and social issues as well. And, you know, they voted for Trump for whatever reason. They they thought he was going to change the system or shake up Washington, whatever. But they are having regrets now and if Democrats have a message that's focused on jobs, focused on health care, we may be able to win back some of them. Not all, not even most, but some of them. And that, to me, is a better strategy than trying to go after some of these country club Republicans who are still pulling the lever for people like Troy Balderson. I think the important thing to understand is this is why some of the debates that I think are not truly happening to the extent you would believe from reading Twitter within the Democratic Party on strategy right. are somewhat pointless, um, which is that each district has a different mix of voters you need to win, right? The strategy Mm -hmm. that, like your voter target group that you need in California 48 is could be very different than Ohio 12 or Pennsylvania 18. And then we have to have the freedom for each, uh, candidate to go in and find that out like is the is a difference between winning by a thousand or losing by a thousand getting uh increasing turnout on college campuses it may be if there is a college campus in that district right mm-hmm. if is it is it getting winning back some number some percentage of trump voters is it holding down uh the republicans margins in these suburban counties and each one is going to be different now 
what I think is important to recognize is that doesn't actually require fundamentally different messages. It may require fundamentally different ways of communicating those messages, but it is this, I think it is the same, like a campaign centered around healthcare, taxes, running against corruption and serving as a check on Trump. That works everywhere. Now you may, you may strike a higher note on one of those than the other, but the core elements of the Democratic platform should work everywhere. But each district is going to be slightly different, right? Some candidate is going to need to win back more of those Obama-Trump voters, and some candidates are going to need to hold down margins in suburban counties. And that is sort of that's just sort of the nature of winning the House back. And it's different. That's why just how sort of running a national campaign to win Congress back is very different than running a presidential election. So that's the Democratic strategy. Let's talk about the Republican strategy. Uh, the New York Times ran a piece on Monday about how Republi- the Republican 2018 plan is to polarize the electorate as much as possible. This is basically, you know, the message that uh, Nancy Pelosi shows up at your house with a bunch of MS-13 gang members and kneeling NFL players. Um, this was basically Trump's closing message in Ohio, in addition to uh, attacking LeBron James. Um so, you know, did it work? Did Trump deliver the win here? Is, the, is, is polarizing the electorate the, uh, the best strategy for Republicans? Maybe. I, like, they, they have a terrible hand, right? They have, yeah. they don't even have a pair of twos. It is a, is a shit hand. They have an unpopular president. They have an unpopular party whose signature legislative accomplishment is incredibly unpopular. All they have is the old hits, right? And they're trying to replicate what worked for Trump. And that is a race-based appeal to fire up white voters, to scare them. They, it is a campaign based on fear. It worked for Trump. It may work in some of these districts. I think it did, had, seemed to have no impact in this district. The polling before the election showed this was a one-point race. Trump went in. He had his rally. He acted like a paranoid goofball. And Balderson still is leading by a tiny fraction of a percent of a vote. So no, nothing seemed to change. I think this is the problem. Just don't have. There is nothing really available to them. They, you know, they, you know, they want to. They said they were going to run on the tax plan. The tax plan is incredibly unpopular and getting more unpopular by the day. Which anyone who knew anything about fucking politics could have told you the day they passed it. Um, and we tried. We, and we said so it the, a lot then. We, and, you know. <laughs> We warned you, Paul Ryan. You didn't listen. We know you. We we know your staff heard it. They should have listened to us. Um, but so I think they're sort of the, the the only thing they can do is what they did, and which is you know you were right. It is uh, Colin Kaepernick showing up at your home with MS13 and Nancy Pelosi. Right. That that is sort of those That's are the, the nightmare. And what that. What it probably does, to the extent that that has any impact at all, if that if that is going to have if that strategy can have any impact, it is going to be the difference between Democrats taking seventy seats and fifty seats. Right? It is yeah. is going to be more likely to have an impact on those sort of marginal, those so far stretch seats that Democrats hope to win than it would in the core set of districts that are the ones that are the most likely to tip the House towards the Democrats. Yeah, and you're and you're absolutely right that you know. Every district is different and every state is different. I mean, clearly, the strategy did not work in Virginia. It failed miserably in Virginia. Uh, Ralph Northam crushed Ed Gillespie. Um, but also, you know, Virginia is a state that is trending blue in a, in a very rapid way. And, um, and But I, I think it's interesting, like, the more they try this strategy, the more they whip up these cultural battles... Um, there is evidence that it's going to turn off a lot of these college-educated voters um, even more. You know, the in districts like and some of these 
California districts and districts and, you know, basically a lot of these districts that Hillary Clinton won where there's still a Republican sitting in that district representing the district in the House. Um, so, you know, I, it's not like uh, this is without, you know, it's it, it's not a uh, zero-sum game here. You know, you you ramp up the base a little bit and you, you could lose some of these college-educated voters. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And it, it just, uh, it also feels like it's... If you're starting to feel old and tired, right? Every right. Trump tweet about every Republican is uh, strong on border, strong on crime, strong on the Second Amendment. And then every Democrat is soft on MS-13, soft on crime, weak border. We'll Nancy Pelosi puppet, raise it, your taxes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it like it is. It was never great. It was never a compelling message. It just it feels like a little more old and faded and tired every time Trump tweets it because no it's like you can like you it has exhaustion dripping off of it everyone it's like it's like everyone's just playing the role of what they're supposed to do because they don't have anything else to do like you even when you hear like Corey Bliss who is the head of Paul Ryan's super PAC the Congressional Leadership Fund which has I think the most money of any group other than the Koch brothers and they have a shitload of the Koch brothers money because they did that whole money laundering scheme, legal money laundering scheme of giving the Koch brothers a tax cut and then getting a cut of that tax cut. <laughs> um, like they, when you hear these guys talk, they're just, they like, they know they're like immigration, MS 13. There's no enthusiasm for this because yeah. they know it has real, it has real limits. Not a lot of feeling behind it. Um, there was some feeling behind Trump's tweet <laughs> this morning. I guess it was late last night, uh, Tuesday night. When I decided to go to Ohio for Troy Balderson, he was down in early voting, 64-36. That was not good. After my speech on Saturday night, there was a big turn for the better. Now Troy wins a great victory during a very tough time of year for voting. (laughs) He will win big in November. He also then tweeted uh, Wednesday morning, five for five, which I don't even know what that meant. And, uh, And then later he tweeted, red wave, in all capital letters. Um... It's always, you know, fraught to try to talk about, like, what was behind these tweets or what he was thinking. Um, Obviously, there's a possibility that it was just, you know, typical Trump neediness. Um, Do you think there was any strategy behind it? What what do you think he's trying to do here? (laughs) Well, at first, he's really, I hate to say this about the President of the United States, but he is painfully stupid. (laughs) Painfully stupid. It's just, it is so, like, he doesn't understand early vote, what that means, he thought it was smart to suggest the Republican wanted a tough time of the year without voting about voting, which I guess is August, like August. Yeah, is what did, I don't know what that means. The tough time of year for voting. I, I guess when you're super rich and you spend that time at your golf club, uh, it doesn't seem like an ideal time for voting. I don't know. But also, Democrats also had to vote. If it was a tough time for Republicans to vote, it was also a tough time for Democrats. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just so asinine. I mean, it's just, it, like it's just it's. He's, red he's wave there. too. Imagine just tweeting red wave. Like, okay, buddy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, and I, I am. Just, so I am curious. Is Trump seems like someone who doesn't go out in search of information that contradicts his point of view. So, and it's he does seem like someone that like anyone in his staff who would tell him bad information seems to have left or quit to spend more time with the grand jury. And so it's, I think he probably believes that a red wave is around the corner. 
that it that you know he's been talking to Hannity, talking to Jeanine Pirro, master political strategists, and checking out those Rasmussen poll numbers, and he thinks, yeah, we're probably going to win, and so he may actually believe this. Good. Now I hope they all believe it. Yeah, don't, good because I want the surprise. Don't worry of about century. it. Don't work hard. It's fine. The red wave is coming. Republicans, just uh, let it let it happen. Don't, I would, don't worry too I, much about. I want it. you to prepare yourself for this now because this will be the thing that makes your head explode. Will be mm-hmm. after the election if the Democrats take the House when Trump tweets blaming the Russians for helping the Democrats. That will be the thing yeah. that it causes it causes, <laughs> it causes you to spontaneously combust in the crooked media offices. I now, was trying the, to think about that, but I I couldn't get my head. I couldn't imagine past the election any kind of good feeling about us winning because I just I can't get myself there. So that's no. that's what's prevented me from imagining yeah, this, that scenario. I think that's a bad feeling because that would be so annoying that and then right. a, and then like Fox would be like, did did the Russians help the Democrats? We have no evidence that they didn't. And so and it'll just be like Hillary Clinton collusion DNC server all in the same tweet. Now, <laughs> here's the, here would be the argument if if Donald Trump was capable of two dimensional thinking, which I do not believe that he is, then this would be the strategy, which is Republicans are disenchanted. Like there's a self fulfilling prophecy to Republican disenchantment, which is they are disenchanted. Everyone's the press says they're disenchanted. They think they're going to lose, and therefore they become more disenchanted. And it just sort of spirals on itself. We've seen this happen before. Now, Karl Rove, uh, back when he was a person in politics, had a theory of politics where basically that if you say you're winning, you're more likely to win because people want to hop on the winning train as opposed to staying off the losing train, however that metaphor extends itself. But so he had this theory in 2000 where he would go around and they like leaked to reporters that, you know, they were they saw a surge in California. And even in 2000, they sent Dick Cheney to Hawaii, where I am right now, because they, they said they saw something they're polling that said that Hawaii was in play. And the idea is like you want to you want to create the idea of momentum. And so theoretically, like I said, theoretically, this could be at, at what a more intelligent person with a more coherent Twitter account would be trying to do, which is to try to, you know, and then, because especially if you have a massive propaganda operation to leverage it, you could convince people that maybe you can win, and therefore there is a reason to turn out, or a reason to volunteer, a reason to donate money. Supposedly we're just going to lose anyway, so why the fuck should I care? Which is kind of where I think they're afraid their voters are right now. I'm still trying to imagine who, which reporter, or which person in America would have believed there's a close race in Hawaii, and one man could tip the balance, and that man is Dick Cheney. <laughs> that, John, that, you were a young boy back then. You didn't was that know there, about the the pre. There ace in the hole, Dick Cheney, Dick Cheney in Hawaii. Yeah, well, I mean, he beat he beat Joe Lieberman in a debate that was pretty embarrassing for the Gore campaign. Oh, well, okay. also nominating Joe Lieberman to be the vice president was embarrassing to the Gore campaign. Um, that was before and, he like started yeah. a bunch of wars in the Middle East. That's right. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, it was very different. Uh, he he was known as the quintessential government bureaucrat, just real solid guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it seems crazy now. These these were different times. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do 
more of it, mm-hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking- that's to... going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Hi, I'm Aaron Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. All right, so there were also primaries on Tuesday night in Michigan, Kansas, Washington State, and Missouri. A lot of the national coverage focused on the races where uh, progressive candidates with insurgent campaigns were running with support from Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, a former leader of the state Senate there, won the Democratic nomination for governor over our friend Abdul Al-Sayed who Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez recently campaigned with. Uh, Whitmer's nomination means that a record 11 women are running for governor this year. There are currently only six women governors, so uh, hope that changes. Also in Michigan, Rashida Tlaib won the Democratic primary in John Conyers' old district and is on path to be the first Muslim woman ever elected to Congress, also the first Palestinian-American ever elected to Congress. Um, In Missouri... William Lacey Clay held off a challenge from Cori Bush. In Kansas, Sharice Davids, an openly LGBT Native American attorney and former MMA fighter, won the Democratic nomination against the Sanders-backed Brent Welder. Dan, you'll be surprised to learn that there were plenty of piping hot takes about what this all means for the Democratic Party, Democratic Socialists. Um, a Politico headline read, Down Goes Socialism, uh, Jim Kessler from the centrist Third Way organization told Dave Weigel of the Washington Post that Tuesday night was a victory for, quote, centrist Democrats, saying, quote, there's a quiet enthusiasm in the middle. (laughs) Um, What do you think of that? Do last night's results say anything about the broader appeal 
of democratic socialist policies or even lefty progressive policies or Bernie Sanders or Ocasio-Cortez or any of that stuff? I mean, we can't even decide what the debate is, right? Is this a debate between the establishment versus anti-establishment? Is this a debate between – is this a question about Bernie Sanders' uh, political appeal? Is it a question of you're right, progressive versus centrist policies? And the answer to all of those is no. Right. Now, let's take the Kansas example, right? So it's like, is this – in a victory for traditional establishment Democrats, the lesbian Native American woman defeated the white guy. Right. <laughs> it's like, it, it, like Gretchen Whitmer, it, who was a great candidate, expanded uh, Medicaid and helped expand Medicaid in Michigan. A Republican state. Yeah, things. she did a great job there. It, yeah, it, like this was, this was a battle. Sometimes this is a battle between two good candidates endorsed by two different groups of people. And it has a lot to do with the individual candidates, the individual states, and it doesn't tell you anything broader. Also, like, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is an incredibly impressive leader. She was awesome on the podcast uh, that you guys, that came out on Tuesday. Lovett's interview with her was great. She's smart. She is compelling. I think there's an incredible amount of lessons to learn from how she ran her race that applies in blue districts, red districts, purple districts, et cetera. But she also was elected. She won a Democratic primary a month ago. And we're now writing stories questioning her broader political appeal. Like, of course, right. like, like the whole thing is just so crazy. We're just trying so hard. We have to jam everything through this Democrats in disarray filter. It's the only way to do it. At a time in which the Republican Party is literally collapsing around its fucking self, we have to wonder about where about these very these sort of dumb esoteric questions that do not matter to voters. That is I promise you, none of the voters in Michigan thought as they were going in, well, what is this you know, I would vote for Gretchen Whitmer, but but Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is for her or something. It's just it's not how people think. They evaluate the candidates, these surrogates, their main role is to help candidates get press and get crowds together for rallies that you can then leverage for organizing, registering to vote, volunteers, et cetera. And that's kind of the extent of it. We spend way too much time thinking about what endorsements mean, what surrogate appearances mean. It doesn't really mean a lot. This is a question of what these voters wanted and who the candidates were, full stop. Yeah, and also, none of these Democrats who won, um, or I guess, you know, quote-unquote establishment Democrats, could be classified as centrist Democrats, first of all. <laughs> I mean, like, the, the, the difference between Abdul and Gretchen, right, was basically their position on health care. Um, Gretchen was not quite for single-payer health care. Abdul had a plan for single-payer. It's one of the reasons that I liked him. Um, but, you know, she's for $15 minimum wage. He was $15 minimum wage. He's for debt-free college. She's for, you know, two free years of community college, right? So these are... The, the reason that I've thought that these primaries are a good thing for the party in these challenges from whether you call them Democratic Socialists or Justice Democrats, back candidates or Bernie Cameron, whatever you want to call them, um, they have pushed the party and they've pushed some of these other candidates to the left, particularly on economic issues. And I think that there is a hunger in the country right now for more economic populism. We saw that because uh, Trump supposedly promised economically populist policies during the campaign, even though it was complete bullshit, and so did Hillary. 
Um, and so there's a hunger for that out there. And I think, I mean, you've said this before too, there's a million different factors that go into why a different candidate wins a, a particular race. Uh, the strength of the candidate, the makeup of the district, the policies they propose, right? So it's hard to untangle exactly what did it. But you can poll which policies are, are, you know, more popular in the country. We know that Medicare for All is widely popular um, when you ask it the right way. Um, you know, Data for Progress, uh, Sean McElwee's group, and our friends at Civis Analytics, who, you know, did a lot of work for the Obama campaign. Um, you know, just today, they pulled five progressive policies, support for large-scale investment in public housing, free tuition, paid family and medical leave, D.C., Puerto Rico, and Virgin Island statehood, and worker representation on a company's board of directors. All five policies received net positive support with likely 2018 voters nationally and in the majority of congressional districts. Some of those policies in almost all congressional districts, um, especially statehood, uh, you'll be happy to know. Um, so, like, we know that, you know, progressive policies and especially economically progressive policies are popular widely so throughout the country. But that doesn't necessarily mean any candidate who promotes those policies is automatically going to win in any district across the country. And I think that, you know, Ocasio-Cortez and some of those candidates realize that. They realize it's sort of a long fight. Um, and they're what they're trying to do is sort of like slowly push the party to the left, win where they can, and where they don't win, you know, uh, take a stand. Yeah, and it is impossible to sort of reverse to go sort of do an autopsy this to understand exactly what happens because like a winning campaign is some mix of message and messenger right right sometimes it's the right message wrong messenger sometimes it's the right messenger wrong message and you've never and it's not you never really know how those percentages allocate right is it 50 50 is it 60 40 and and so like in some cases it may be the like you're to your point the policy is very popular but this was not the most compelling messenger delivered or the right messenger for the moment, right? It's the other thing because it's all in a context of a certain moment in the state. And I think there is one important thing to note, which is, I, you know, each of these are sort of district, you know, sort of unique to the individuals running, the message they were giving and the, in the places in which they were running. But there is one consistent, which is when a Dave Wasserman, who is the must follow on all election nights um, yes. at redistrict from the cook report who does some work I think with 538 as well is the is that when a there have been a democratic primary between a man and a woman the female candidate has won nearly 70 percent of the time yeah in in this in this election cycle in the republican party it's been approximately 34 percent. so there is that is something that that is something that happens whether you're in california or kansas and i think it is just worth noting about where the party is, where, you know, who is driving success, uh, driving, driving the enthusiasm and success the party's had to date. And it's just, and, and that, it, that, that is a consistent, consistent theme that we should watch heading in 2018. And frankly, something to be very curious to watch in 2020 is all these candidates decide whether they're going to run or not. Yeah. Women candidates are running. Women candidates are winning. Women are um, carrying the vote for Democrats in a lot of these districts. And women are doing a lot of the work, most of the work, on the ground, volunteering, um, knocking on doors, making phone calls. So um, that is yeah. the energy that we're seeing in 2018 for sure. Um, yeah, we should give a shout out to uh, two groups on that front. Uh, a couple groups, actually, more than two. Uh, run for something, our Amanda Lippman, our friends there, who have been encouraged people to run up and down the ballot, but have recruited uh, hundreds upon hundreds of women to run for office. Emily's List, which has been 
uh, training and endorsing and electing candidates in Emerge uh, America, which has also been training female candidates. And all of those have had a huge impact in uh, what we're seeing uh, up and down the ballot since the day Donald Trump was elected. Right. Uh, So a few other results. In Missouri, uh, progressive criminal justice reformer Wesley Bell ousted St. Louis prosecutor uh, Bob McCullough. Who's been criticized for the way he handled the police shooting of Michael Brown? Bell promised to end cash bail and mass incarceration. Um, Missouri voters also rejected the state's right to work law. This is big, which hadn't yet gone into effect. Um, by huge margins, they rejected this law. The law would have allowed workers to get all the benefits of being in a union without paying dues, which is basically a way of just decimating unions. Uh, according to the Economic Policy Institute, Right-to-work laws, which are now on the books in 27 states, have led to roughly 3% decline in wages for union and non-union workers. Um, Dan, why is why is this such a big deal? I mean, it is. There, We have been, workers in this country have been suffering from a decades-long Republican strategy funded by big business to decimate unions, both at the federal and state level, and to eliminate collective bargaining rights to make it so they can offer less wages and benefits, less worker safety, et cetera. And we have to fight back on this, and we have not. And in a state as red as Missouri, that voters overwhelmingly got rid of a right-to-work law. That is that that should send a warning sign to the corporatist wing of the Republican Party, the Koch brothers, and everyone else. And it should be a signal to Democrats that in every state in which you can put this on the ballot and you need to put it on the ballot, we should put it on the ballot because it, it is the right thing to do. And we have a – this is to your point about populism, that this is – you see this. People want to side with workers. And so I think it's, it's a hugely encouraging sign, and I hope – uh, we try to replicate it everywhere we can. I also, the St. Louis prosecutor, Wesley Bell's victory, is a truly wonderful thing. And I think we, whether you saw this with the new district attorney in Philadelphia, where you've seen it in, you know, in other urban areas around the country where there's few things that can do more to put in place core progressive reforms than electing a criminal justice reform-minded prosecutor, state's attorney, district attorney, et cetera. Huge. Yeah, it's really great news in Missouri overall. And also Republicans also knew, Republicans in Missouri knew, um, or at least were very worried that the right to work law would go down. And in fact, they were so worried that it was originally supposed to be voted on um, in November, in the November election, but they tried to decouple it from the November election and put it um, on the, during the primary on Tuesday because they were worried that it would fuel Democratic turnout in November and help Claire McCaskill keep the Senate and help some of the House candidates win. So they tried to make sure that it was during the primary and not in November. So Republicans get that these, that having, you know, trying to repeal right to work laws will get the base out and will, you know, uh, gin up turnout. So uh, you're right, we should put it on the ballot wherever we can. Um, Finally, Democrats got some very good news in Washington state where it looks like three seats held by Republicans could now be within reach for pickups in the fall by Democrats. Washington has a top two primary system, just like California, where the top two vote getters advance to the general election regardless of their party. This means that the California and Washington primaries are historically very predictive of what happens in the general. Uh, In two of the races where Democrats are trying to flip seats, the Democrats running had a combined total of more votes than the Republican incumbent. In the district held by Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who's one of the Republican leaders in the House, I think she's number four, um, Democrat Lisa Brown was nearly tied after early returns. Um, does this mean, Dan, there are seats up for grabs that aren't yes, even on yes, most people's radar yet? And that is great. Also, it is nice to—the House, 
in elections for the House, unlike the president, the person with the most votes votes win. So that is a very encouraging sign that Democrats have more votes than Republicans. Yeah, look, <laughs> in a in a wave, you can win seats anywhere and everywhere. That there are seats that seemed out of reach, members of Congress who seemed unbeatable who go down. And which is why it is so impressive and important that Democrats have done such a good job of running candidates nearly everywhere. And so, you know, yeah. in previous years when there when it was harder to get people to run for office, when people weren't as enthusiastic, when frankly the party the party and by the party I don't just mean like the DCCC, but I do mean the DCCC, but also swing left, indivisible, all these all this the outside grassroots groups were not working so hard to get people to run for office. We we would have these districts that we could have won, we just wouldn't have had a candidate to do it. And so run everywhere, fight everywhere, compete everywhere. And we can win everywhere. We really can. The, the opportunity is there. It's like you can see it, right? We have everything we need to take the House back in a huge way. We just have to get people to vote. That's all it is. It's just do the getting work. Gotta do the people work. to vote, persuading people to vote who would not otherwise vote, persuading people to vote for a Democrat over a Republican, registering people to vote. It is all right. Like everything we need to fundamentally Stop this White House in its tracks is right before us. We just have to do the work. And that is both tantalizing and fucking scary. Because if we blow this opportunity, it could be a generation before we get it again. It all comes down to turnout, Dan. That's what they say. Um, So (laughs) we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss the latest Republican crime today. Uh, Federal prosecutors on Wednesday charged one of Donald Trump's earliest congressional supporters with insider trading. Congressman Chris Collins of New York has been accused of scheming with his kid to avoid losses in a biotechnology investment. Prosecutors said he tipped off his son with inside information about bad trial results. Um, Dan, is that bad? That sounds bad. Yeah, that is definitely seems bad. I think this is not a you know New York Times investigative story suggesting that he did something wrong. He was arrested. No, he's been arrested. <laughs> he, was, he was arrested. <laughs> For allegedly committing a crime. And I think there's several things here. One, this is yet another argument for why Democrats can and should be running on the culture of corruption in Washington. And it's not just that Republicans are corrupt. It's the Democrats have to be pushing an agenda of congressional reform, which is sometimes uncomfortable for Democrats because they are also in Congress. But we need ethics reform. So Jake Sherman of Politico Playbook fame asked this question on Twitter. A question I've gotten a lot in the last few hours was, how was Chris Collins, a member of Congress, allowed to serve on a board of a publicly traded pharmaceutical company when serving? To add to that, Collins was on the Energy and Commerce Committee, which oversees the industry. Yeah, good question, Jake. (laughs) (laughs) That is a a great question. I have been refreshing my feed. I am looking for fucking answers to this question, Jake. So if you're out there, please tweet it at us. But point, I think Jake's question may be rhetorical, which is... Because the rules fucking allow it, and we should change the rules. And this is something that people can understand. And it is an argument. This is when we talked about how you know how we can get some of those uh, suburban voters who may be out of loyalty to the Republican Party, supporting even though they don't like Trump, supporting Republicans in Congress. Mm. It is this. It is cleaning up this mess, which we can and must do. And it can't just be we're going to. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're there. They didn't drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp. We have to put the meat on the bones of specific ethics proposals and reforms. And that should be a big part of 2018. It should be a big part of 2020 because our president is 
a corrupt grifter. I mean, in just the last two days, I've now been I've I've started keeping track of all these. They're giving us so much material for this. We're gonna we're gonna forget that there's so much material. Billionaire cabinet secretary Wilbur Ross accused of stealing over 120 million dollars. Prosecutions of white collar crime at a 20 year low under the Trump administration. EPA allowing companies to use asbestos again. And then my favorite story from yesterday, ProPublica had this. Mar-a-Lago guests making policy for veterans. We have the uh, <laughs> the head of Marvel running the VA secretly from Mar-a-Lago when he's on the golf course with Donald Trump. What the fuck? John, question for you. Is, is Marvel a healthcare company? It is not, Dan. <laughs> it's not a healthcare company. You mean the guy, the guy responsible for the Ant-Man and the Wasp is running the VA secretly from a fucking golf club? Is that what you're no, telling this me? Is what, this is what America is today. If you can afford to be a member of the president's fancy golf club, you can make policy in whatever, uh, whatever agency you see fit. Um, so, you know, if you want to make some agriculture policy, that's fine. Just, you know, fork over however many tens of thousands of dollars you need to be a fucking Mar-a-Lago member. It is, uh, it's bad. It's bad stuff. Yeah, it's, re- it's really bad. We can fix this. We can fix it. We will be much better at this. We can fix it. Um, okay, before, before we go, before we get to Tommy's interview, I just, I have to get your thoughts on New York Times reporter Mark Leibovich's profile of your friend and mine. Paul Ryan, love it's here, love it's laughing already. <laughs> here's here's the quote. I <laughs> I look. I, it was really hard to pick you, out one quote from Ryan to to get you to react to, but I think I I found my favorite. Ryan said, "I'm very okay, comfortable with the decisions I've made. I would make them again, do it again the same way. I can look myself in the mirror at the end of the day and say I avoided that tragedy. I avoided that tragedy. I avoided that tragedy. I advanced this goal." So, Dan, I guess we owe Paul Ryan one big thank you. We have been so wrong. <laughs> I just, it, The whole article, which is brilliantly written, because as you read the article, everyone is in on the joke. Mark Leibovich, the readers, <laughs> Paul Ryan's staff, everyone except Paul Ryan. And really what, the, what this really is is a case study in the power of self-delusion, which is Paul. only Paul Ryan can s- somehow make himself believe that he is not the bad guy in this situation. And But you can see it. Even the quotes are half-hearted. Like, he's just... just One of the other quotes, he was like, you know, he put, out, he put out a very good tweet last night, <laughs> which was also like, it's, oh, right, because well, you've been lying to us for however many years now, when you say, I don't read his tweets. I don't know what you're talking about. In the interview, Paul Ryan just out of the blue remembers a tweet that, that Donald Trump put out last night. So Mark Leibovich is a friend of ours. I have been involved with many over the years, Mark Leibovich profiles, articles of politicians I've worked for. And the piece of advice, the first time Mark Leibovich ever called my office and asked uh to do a profile of a politician I was working for, the piece of advice I got was, Mark Leibovich is great, but he has the finest eye for phoniness of anyone out there. So if you're can't, if you're a politician, your boss is phony, run as far as you can. Oh, first time I talked to Mark Leibovich, I was terrified. F- I don't think I said anything. I was like, I'm going to say something. He's going to write yes. a terrible profile. I got to run. <laughs> yeah, yes. Paul Ryan is the phoniest fucking person <laughs> in America. <laughs> and I, he just... he. 
He is, and everyone knows it. And I do think Paul Ryan has very smart communication staff, and their decision to participate in this profile was proof that they hate themselves <laughs> and they hate their lives. <laughs> Dan, Dan, hey, so I got I came in the last five minutes. There were so many episode titles. I don't know what to do. I know. So, but here's the thing. Reading that, first of all, the profile is incredible. I came away believing that Paul Ryan believes what he told Mark Leibovich. I think he has convinced himself. I think so of, too. Of I believe that too. I agree. I agree with that. He is. He does not. He's not. He's not bullshitting us. He actually. I mean, he is bullshitting us. But I don't. He. Does, I don't think he knows it. He really does. He's gonna go back to Wisconsin and think. I did my best. The whole, all, it's just like all the people in the Trump administration who know better, who should know better. I prevented tragedy. I, pre- it could have been so much worse without me there. Uh, and what they don't say is it was also the politically easy thing for them to do what they did, which was to say nothing and do nothing to stop this man who has degraded our fucking country. Dan, I want to ask you this question. Uh, it is a yes or no question. <laughs> Is Omarosa the person who has carried him or herself with the most integrity of anyone who has left this White House? <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice. We should get Ira on to ask that. We should ask Ira I'm too. talking about love it or leave it tomorrow Perfect. about we're this gonna, very question. We're going to have an inter-crooked media. We're going to ask all the crooked media host this question <laughs> about Omarosa. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I can't wait to hear the tapes because of the Daily Beast report just as we were sitting down that she taped Trump. How, you know what we should do is we should t- do a uh, a bet about how many times the phrase "Diet Coke, please" is heard. <laughs> um, well, ev- everyone, if you haven't read it yet, please go read the uh, the Mark Leibovich Paul Ryan profile because it is uh, it is fantastic. Uh, Michael Barbaro talked to Leibovich for Wednesday's Daily. And they have a record. They have audio recording of the interview between Lubavitch and Paul Ryan. They have just like little snippets of it. Oh, I so go listen to that. And the Daily's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it it is great just because you've got Michael, who was always very serious in that podcast, and then you've got Lubavitch, who is really funny, and and then you've got this recording of Paul Ryan, and it's just like I was laughing the whole ride, the whole ride. I'm like, I can't believe Barbara's not even laughing at this. Right. But as we know, it's from, great. Remember when this happened with Stephen Miller, when the Times had audio of Stephen Miller talking about the family separation policy, and then the White House refused to allow the Daily to use that audio for broadcast. So there was a moment yeah. where. They did this. They agreed to this interview. They did the interview. They listened to the things that Paul Ryan said. And then the Daily called and said, hey, can we broadcast this? And they were like, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think no. I think that they, they learned from their mistakes. And now they get the permission to use it in the podcast in advance. I think he was I think that <laughs> yeah, they, had, yeah. they had bound that he was fucked. <laughs> Uh, you, at one point, he's like, he, he prints out the tweet from Trump and he hands it to Paul Ryan to have Paul Ryan read it. And Leibovich is like, and he's just sitting there and he's like mumbling things to himself. And at one point, you just hear Paul Ryan go, oh, yeah, I like the all caps for emphasis there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, great job being speaker, Paul Ryan. You nailed it. Enjoy your retirement. Um, when we come back, we will have... Tommy's interview with Matt Rivets from Sleeping Giants. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. 
there's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen to Listen two, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras <laughs> Become a member today. Go to Cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com enjoy your edible <laughs> legal disclaimer paid for by vote save america votesaveamerica.com not authorized by any candidate or candidates committee sleeping giants is an organization that was founded in 2016 they've been fighting against racism sexism homophobia xenophobia anti-semitism in the media uh the way they've been doing it and pushing this campaign of media responsibility is by targeting ad dollars uh that campaign and the men and women behind the site were anonymous until the Daily Caller, our good friends the Daily Caller, revealed the identity of its founder against his wishes. I am honored to have that man on the show today. Matt Rivets, welcome to Pod Save America. Good to be here. So first, I want to do a, a little disclosure because this is a responsible media organization. Um, you and I have DM'd for a while because, you know, all of us at Pod Save America, we saw the work you were doing early on, you and the the many other giants, the sleeping giants uh, that support the Twitter page. Uh, but for most of that time, you were anonymous. So I didn't know your name, but I felt like I should be straightforward about that. Um, yeah. And there's also, this could probably put to bed the idea that we're the same person, which has I know. been floating around Twitter so, for a long time. So many people have accused me of being the person behind Sleeping Giants. I'm like, do you see you how much work they time. do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, nothing I've done in my life is as effective. So, Let's get into it. So shortly after the election, you created this Twitter account, Sleeping Giants, and you started urging people to take screenshots of ads uh, being served on Breitbart. And you asked the brands, then they would take those screenshots and ask the brands that were serving those ads if they were comfortable giving money to a website that ran articles with headlines like, quote, birth control makes women unattractive and crazy, end quote. That's an actual Breitbart headline. Um, the effort was wildly successful. You know, you the organization itself is apolitical. You describe it as apolitical. You yourself weren't particularly politically active uh, before starting Sleeping Giants. Why did you decide to do this, uh, and how did you come up with the idea? Um, I I don't really remember all that well. Sort of how the the early thoughts I had on it. It was just kind of like cruising on um, the frustration of Steve Bannon being. Uh, you know, in the media so much. And he's mm -hmm. he seemed to me, I'd never really heard about him too much until he was in the, the spotlight. And, um, you know, he just clearly was, to me anyway, very racist and, and um, was divisive. And so 
Um, you know, I just hadn't heard of Breitbart myself. And so I just, you know, just wanting to be well-informed, went to check out the site and pretty quickly uh, was shocked to see like a black crime section say, uh, yeah. you know, and, and the articles you mentioned, I mean, the headlines are ridiculously sexist and racist uh, to me. And my next thought was being in advertising because I'm, I'm in the business, who is supporting this and who, um, you know, who's, who's flowing their ad dollars to this website that, you know, um, denigrates everyone from women to the gay community to Muslims to every, you know, just all different kinds of groups. And, and it was just, mm-hmm. it felt to me like uh, it didn't feel like a news site. It felt like an incredibly, uh, you know, racist sort of propaganda organ. And, and I, I just, I just couldn't figure out how, you know, what the, what companies would be supporting it because, you know, being in the business, you see, you want to appeal to as many people as you possibly can. So why would you advertise yep. on a site that, you know, that, that is sort of dedicated to tearing those people down? So, um, I just looked at who was advertising there. And the first advertiser I saw was this company, SoFi, which is a, a mortgage company, a progressive loan company in San Francisco. And that mm-hmm. felt fishy to me. Um, yeah. so I started this thing. I put up some, uh, some really terrible, um, uh, you know, stock art that I found online and, uh, you know, with, and I found some, you know, some, uh, like an illustration as a logo and just put it up. And I was like, well, I'll just let them know and we'll just see what happens. And I thought maybe there'd be, you know, five, six advertisers on there. And I really wanted to find out if they supported this kind of stuff. So, uh, so I dropped a a tweet to the CEO and to the company on their Twitter handle, um, because literally one other time I had tweeted at Ikea while I was waiting for a stupid uh, dresser to come out and uh-huh. they were not getting back to me. They, they they were not bringing it out. It was like two hours long. I was waiting. So I tweeted at the company. They got back to me right away. So I said, yeah. well, maybe there's probably someone at all these companies that's manning the Twitter handle. So I just sent them a screenshot oh. with their logo. Uh, next to um, a particularly offensive article, and they got back within 30 minutes, and they said, "Whoa, we had no idea we were there." And then, of course, that sort of became a much bigger deal. It, it became okay, so we're dealing with five advertisers to who knows how many advertisers we're dealing with because they have no idea they were there. So right. it really became an informational campaign after that. Yeah, 90 percent of the blue checkmark uh, verified people on Twitter use it to bitch at airlines. So. You, uh, you, you, you <laughs> yeah. picked up on something. I definitely here. am part of that. And I, just to <laughs> let you know, that is literally one of the maybe like 10 tweets I had sent out in my entire life. And so sitting on a mountain of like, you know, 40,000 tweets a year now or something like uh, it was a, it's a new experience for me. Yeah, I'm sure. So, OK, so what people do with to help out sleeping giants is they they go to the Breitbart website they take a screenshot of an ad they tweet it to the advertiser with a polite note uh and they tag sleeping giants and inform them hey brand x did you know that your ad dollars are going to support xenophobia homophobia etc can you explain how programmatic advertising works and why so many of these companies had no idea where their online ad dollars were being spent yeah i mean it used to be um, when I got into the business that you would create a television spot 
you would know where the spot was going to run. They would tell you what time it was going to be on so you could watch it for the first time. They knew where what show it was going to be on and what time and what network. And what's happened now is that you uh, you know companies will create an ad um, and then uh, they will then send it to Google uh, or Facebook or um, there's another company called AppNexus. There are a lot of these different programmatic ad companies out there to basically spray it all over the internet. And so mm-hmm. some companies like AppNexus dropped out of Breitbart even before uh, we had started this campaign. I had started it. And so they, they knew that it was wrong right away and they took their, their business elsewhere because they, know, they knew that they needed to keep their brands safe. Um, and like kudos to them for doing that. But uh, Google and Facebook, uh, they, their ad networks, like on Facebook, when people place an ad on Facebook, they don't even have any idea that they're even going to be placed on another site other than Facebook. And yet right. they are, this happens every single day. So huh. um, they really, these companies don't know they're there. And uh, the responsibility is on these programmatic ad companies to decide what is brand safe and what is safe for these companies. And they're not they're not actually doing it. And so that's how Breitbart ends up there. They're on these ad networks and despite their terms of service, they won't let go of Breitbart, even though a lot of these articles and the comments on those articles break their terms of service. They won't remove them from the from their ad networks. So it's kind of incumbent upon us to let them know. And, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's there's a decent percentage of companies that we tweet at, maybe in the 90, 90s, uh, 90 percentile um, that will remove themselves. We've gotten very few notes back that say, yeah, we're not interested. Um, yeah, pound, maybe pound three. <laughs> right. So, I mean, so you have, you have not done this alone. Um, you you had an early uh, co-founder, Nandini Jami. Yeah. Uh, and then this army of just average people helping out, uh, alerting advertisers one by one that they were on Breitbart. And to date, you guys have gotten nearly 4,000 advertisers to stop working with Breitbart. I mean, that is insane that it's is pretty an crazy enormous impact w- was there a moment where you stepped back and thought holy shit this is this is maybe too effective um yeah like every day i say holy shit this is going to be too effective i mean like no one is more surprised than me that this thing has been uh successful i mean i just it literally started on a you know on a whim um and then i think within like 10 days of doing it i realized that this was going to be kind of a big deal that it was mm-hmm. worthy of pressing on. And I'm lucky enough that right after I started it, um, this uh, incredible woman uh, posted an article talking about um, doing exactly what I was doing, but independently of me. And uh, you mentioned her name, Nandini Jami. So she, uh, I reached out to her really early on. I said, hey, you seem to have the same idea. Do you want to collaborate on this? And she was all over it and jumped in and she's been... Um, you know, an equal part with me. And then we've got an, another um, another level of people that don't want to put their names out there that help every day doing, you know, everything from the uh, spreadsheets of the companies to keeping track of things to, you know, helping out on, um, on uh, other projects that we've been doing. So, you know, we've got a smaller team, but um, everyone um, has been has been incredible. But what's amazing, too, is the following is that the people have joined the campaign just on Twitter and Facebook um, come to us with ideas every day. They're all over it and they've got, 
you know, some ideas we'll use, some some we won't. We're pretty picky because we don't want to, you know, feed the outrage machine. But um, the the uh, the the sleeping giants um, uh, army is a, is a pretty effective one, and they're really engaged, yeah. and that's been incredible. I mean, that we've got. We've now got uh, feeds in like 13 countries. Um, people have just volunteered wow. to take over in their countries, and they're doing a similar thing. Like Australia right now is killing it in a huge way, and um, we've just seen that over time. And it's been—I'm blown away. I mean, I have—I literally—I—I yeah. I really had no idea this was going to happen. And some days I think, why? Why did it happen? And why am I doing this? But for the most part, <laughs> okay. it's gone pretty well. Yeah, hour nine of you've logged on any given day of, of tweeting it, right? But I mean, yeah. it is like one of the most impactful um, uh, examples of citizen activism I've seen since 2016. Thank and, you, man. Kudos to you guys. So, ad revenue is is important to any media company. Um, I say that as an individual who reads ads personally. But one challenge that you know you have and your organization has is a lot of these right wing outlets are propped up by money from billionaire Republican donors. Uh, for example, there's the Mercer family. They seated Breitbart. They're big Steve Bannon fans. There is JV Breitbart, uh, a shitty rag called the Federalist that is propped up by some anonymous donors' money. Those creeps aren't you know, seeding these organizations for a return on their investment. It's all about ideology and, and spreading that ideology. Like, Does that worry you? How can sleeping giants be effective in those instances, whether it's a Republican or a Democratic billionaire that's pushing hate speech? Yeah, I I don't think that's a good thing for any of us. You know, we we need news should be news, and when these sites look like news and act like news and they couch themselves as news, I think that's really dangerous for everyone on on any side of an issue. And so, ideally, that's why we're dealing with this whole fake news issue: what's real and what's not. And I think as a country, when we lose track of that, that's really dangerous. I think as far as the donors are concerned. Look, they have every right to fund whatever they're going to do. That's their prerogative. It's a free country. We've got free speech. They've got free speech. All is uh, above board as far as you know the laws are concerned. But what's dangerous is when they start really pushing these ideologies and people don't know who's behind it. It just feels like these are very self-serving websites that um, yep. are really divisive and and convincing people of things that they might not have been convinced of otherwise because they take it as news. Right. Um so as we sort of I mentioned at the top the the good people the daily caller decided to disclose your identity. Uh I guess this shouldn't surprise me or anyone since they have a vested interest in protecting the you know kinds of content that you guys are going after, or at least, you know, they're, they're Breitbart-like, that's for sure. Um, but here we are. Um, I, I know from talking to you and from, you know, reading about the experience that you've gotten death threats uh, and been targeted personally. Can you talk a bit about what this experience has been like and, and you know, what it has taught you about uh, the, the people supporting Breitbart? Yeah, I mean, it sucks. I think we're really tribal right now, and people are willing to protect whatever side they think they're on and you know and that means doing dastardly shit like you know exposing people's private information so i mean that part sucked uh, we got relentlessly harassed for days and still still do they call my wife who's had nothing to do with this gets calls um from people and and they published our address and my kids names and the whole thing and that that part really sucks but on the other side of it it's been uh, enormously, it's been a boon for Sleeping Giants. Uh, you know, um, there's never been a 
public face to this for a reason. We wanted to keep it about the issues and keep it about the people that are taking part in it. Ultimately, uh, you know, four days later, we ended up on the on the cover of uh, on the on the front page of the New York Times business section, and we got a lot of love from that, and we got a lot more people joining. I mean, since they since they exposed uh, my name and my wife's name and my friend's name and where my wife grew up going to school uh, for really no reason at all. Um, they have now, uh, you know, we've added like 20,000 more people on Twitter and, you know, a bunch more on Facebook and we've gotten a whole lot more ads. But the more people we add, the more effective it is and the bigger voice we have. So it has a compounding effect. If we have more people, there are more retweets, more people are paying attention and more companies are paying attention. So it's been a lot more effective and I'm not sure that was their their goal. I think their goal was mm-hmm. to get me to lose my job and to make my life miserable and to harass me. And there's no real other reason in my mind that they would have done that. Because, you know, frankly, I wasn't, you know, we weren't going after them at all. And so they definitely had a vested interest in making my life a living hell. But at the same time, it really helped. And so while the harassment obviously has been, you know, shitty, the, the outcome has not been what they had planned. And it's not like I'm putting it in their face, but, you know, it's helped us grow this movement a lot more. And we're going to continue to grow from here. It's been uh, yeah. it's been a, a wild two and a half weeks. Yeah, I imagine. Well, I'm, I'm sorry you had to deal with that on a personal level. That is just so unnecessary. But it is. It is. And it is, it is for everybody. Representative of the these organizations, too. I mean, yeah, it is for everybody. You know, no one we should we should have a little bit of privacy in this world and yep. there's so little of it left and so you know you'll hear people on all sides of an issue this is happening to them and it's just you know people wanted to expose the address of the the guy that wrote um the article about me exposing me and and you know we were like let's not do that it's not fun it's not good for anybody and it doesn't improve right. the discourse so like let's let's just keep it on the up and up we got to be better than that yeah um, so in, in recent days, a bunch of technology companies decided to kick Alex Jones off their platform. He is a ranting, raving, conspiracy theory, loving, hate speech peddling individual who makes a bunch of YouTube shows, basically. Um, it started with Apple, then YouTube and Google. I think I have the sequencing right. And then Facebook came along as well. Um, Alex Jones is hardly new to this scene. He's been saying horrible, horrible things like 9-11 was a conspiracy done by the government. Uh, the Oklahoma City uh, bombings was an inside job for, for many years. Um, can you talk about what these companies did to Alex Jones's content and whether you think it's sufficient? Well, look, they've been helping Alex Jones spread these messages for a long time. And they've done it. Uh, they've done it very much against their own terms of service. We all sign on. When we sign up for any social platform or really anything, we sign on to a bunch of rules. And we don't look at those rules a lot of time, but we sign them. And we are all supposed to live by them. And the companies are supposed to live by them. But what they haven't done is enforce these terms of service on Alex Jones ever. For the better part of a year, we've been asking Facebook and Twitter uh, and YouTube why certain things that he says, like when he threatens the life of Robert Mueller, special counsel, why is that not against your terms of service? And every time they do backflips to keep him on their platform because they're afraid to take a stand. Because what's happened is there's been a big movement saying, um, you know, our voices are being silenced. 
these tech companies, there's, they're, they're looking to silence uh, what we're trying to say. And, um, and Alex Jones is just the poster child of that. But in, in fact, what he's really done is he's used his platform and then all these other social platforms to relentlessly harass Sandy Hook parents um, you know, after their, their kids were murdered. They, they've, these, some of these families have had to move five times to get away from these people that are harassing them, that are Alex Jones followers. He's uh, smeared Las Vegas shooting victims as actors, and he makes their lives a living hell. And, and these social platforms are allowing it to happen. So yeah. what, what happened the other day is Apple took a stand and said, we're going to actually enforce our rules this time. And they went and did it. Th- then Facebook did it, and then Spotify did it, and then YouTube did it. The problem is they should have done this a long time ago. And right. when they all did it at the same time on the same day, it, it, it makes it look like it was all planned, even if it wasn't. They were all just looking for cover, you know, to, to uh, cover themselves. And Apple went forward and did it. So they all did it. They really should have all done it independently on their own a long time ago, according to their own terms of service. So we've been asking them, why now? Like, why, why didn't you do this a long time ago? And will you do it in the future if he... Right. Um, if Alex Jones or someone like him decides to uh, spread hate on your platform, what are your rules going to be and how are you going to enforce right. them? And so we're looking for some more clarity there. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I, I think anyone listening knows that I'm I'm very much on your side on this issue. I mean, there's no First Amendment violation when a private company says you can't spew hate on our private platform. And there actually might be a legally problematic component to this if someone's making totally false claims, it could cross the line into libel and slander. And certainly Jones has gone there. But there are some who say, okay, hate speech is the reason these companies put forward for kicking Alex Jones off their platforms. That is an an ambiguous term. And ambiguous terms like that, combined with political pressure, can be a slippery slope to censorship. It is a slippery slope. What do you say to that? Yeah, it is a slippery slope. It really is. They're right. What they're missing is that they haven't enforce these terms that are very clear. The terms are very clear. The enforcement is not so clear. So by avoiding the situation as long as they have and actually enforcing these very clear terms, they've opened themselves up to, you know, it sounds like they're being pressured. It sounds like they're all working together to get rid of them when in fact they were all just looking for cover. So, you know, look, there have been obviously um, since this happened because we've been tweeting at these companies for a long time, um, we've had after, after Alex Jones got kicked off Apple and then subsequently the other platforms, there's been a whole lot of obviously incredibly heated debate on our, in our mentions and debate is good. And there, there are people that are really worried that it is a slippery slope. And I tend to agree. I mean, I think, I think these companies should, um, be very clear in their enforcement and very, unequivocal in their rules. They need to tell us all what what is expected of us, and then they need to follow through when people don't actually abide by those rules. And so right. if they do that, then it's clear, and then we don't have these debates anymore. So speaking of ambiguous rules, let's talk about Twitter. Twitter has not suspended Alex Jones. They say he hasn't violated their rules. Uh, in a tweet storm about the decision, Jack Dorsey seemed to pass the responsibility for vetting Alex Jones's statements to journalists, which is strange since not only journalists are allowed to follow him. W- what do you make of Twitter's decision, Jack's explanation, and, and do you understand their rules of the road? No, I don't think anyone does. You know, I think, I think that 
uh, they haven't made it super clear. And and what he, I think he muddied the waters even more uh, with his um, thread yesterday. I mean, he really said that we've never been good at explaining why what our rules are and why we and how we enforce them. And then he went on to not explain what the rules are or how they enforce them on Alex Jones. So, or they didn't enforce them. So to me, I, they have not made it clear. You know, I've caught a little shit on our Twitter handle. I, I did a little thread uh, last night saying it's good actually that Twitter didn't just follow the leader here because all these platforms have to have their own rules and their enforcement policies. So it's in a way, you know, the fact that he didn't just follow the leader arbitrarily is a good thing. The The reality is, is that he should have gotten rid of him a very, very long time ago. And these companies all need to figure out what they're willing to put up with on their platform. And they need to tell us all what those things are. I think Twitter has not made that very clear. And, right. you know, I think they're getting uh, credit on in certain circles and they're getting, you know, absolutely decimated in other circles because they haven't made it clear. So, that would yeah. be a really good step in the right direction if we all just knew what to expect. As a, right. as a technical thing, what would be good to know is that if Alex Jones uh, posts or anyone else posts a video on Twitter that breaks their terms, is that going to count as harassment or you know hate speech or whatever they're going to whatever those rules are going to be? Will that break those rules instead of just a written tweet? It's a technical thing, but it means everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, that's an interesting point. And also sort of complicating this whole question is a lot of these companies say, well, you know what? Well, they said before this week that they were already dealing with Alex Jones and others like him by pulling down hateful content on a case-by-case basis or throttling back the amount that those posts were shared by tweaking their algorithm or whatever they do. But I, like, how is how do you take this absolute position on free speech, but also throttle content. That seems completely discordant to me. Yeah, it does. And I, I, uh, if we're being honest, I think that's a crock of shit. I, I don't think spin. at all like they're shadow banning or whatever. I think those are all made up terms. And, um, you know, frankly, we give Twitter so much crap that I can't believe we're not shadow banned if that's, if that's the thing. <laughs> so, like, yeah. that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but, you know, look, these companies are their um, their private businesses, publicly traded private businesses, and they need to make the rules rules of the road. Free speech protects us all from our government, and we can yell and scream anything we want on our street corner. We can set up a website if the if the web web host is okay with it to say whatever we want. But these companies have nothing that free speech doesn't apply to them and right, they need to right. give us the rules, their rules. Um, it's for the free speech argument is not a good one to me. They, we right. should have a free discourse and that's great. But um, if there's a certain amount of discourse uh, that doesn't work, then they need to get rid of it or tell us what is good and what's not. The other thing is these companies are ad supported and getting back to what the original mission of Sleeping Giants is, they're ad supported. They've got tons of advertisers flowing millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars into their into their coffers, and they need to keep those brands safe. So they're trying to find that line. You know, no one, no advertiser that I know wants to be next to Alex Jones saying 9/11 is a conspiracy. 
that is not a brand safe environment. So they need to figure out what uh, what they're going to do about that. Yeah. Um, if people listen to this conversation, they like your mission, they like the work you're doing, how can they help? Um, just follow us on Twitter and we'll, we'll give you some instructions. <laughs> That's the best way to do it. I, you know, we, we have not, um, we, we don't, uh, take any money. We've done two crowdfunded, uh, crowdfunded, um, operations. We've sent, uh, a billboard to Amazon and a bill of, a mobile billboard to Amazon, a mobile billboard to Facebook, asking them why they continue to support uh, Breitbart. Um, and nothing happened from there. <laughs> but it, it was a worthy it, uh, it was a worthy endeavor, and people donated that we made money to do that. We raised money to do that very quickly. But we're doing this on a volunteer basis, all of us. And so um, we don't the only money that we take in is through merch sales, and we're gonna we're not even paying ourselves with that. We're gonna just, put it right back into um, endeavors that we're going to do in the future. And so um, we're not looking for cash. We're just looking for help. And so if people want to show up and follow us, that would be awesome. Um, we are, uh, we're, you know, manning the handle, uh, Twitter handles and Facebook page at all times and would love any ideas they want to bring and, and any help they can, they can give us. Well, Matt, thanks for doing the show. Uh, a lot of people after the 2016 election sat around and thought, what the hell can I do? How can I make a difference? I'm just a random citizen. Uh, and you sure as hell found an impactful way to you know, try to clean up some of the awful rhetoric and things that were going on, uh, especially around that election. So thank you for that work, and thanks for doing the show. Thank you, man. really appreciate it. And uh, thank you guys for all you do, too. We're trying. And if you, can, uh, if you log on to the Twitter.coms, uh, go to Search for Sleeping Giants. It's a fun feed. You'll learn a lot. And you'll, uh, you know, you can tweet at Jack like the rest of us and, and complain at him. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks again. Thank you. Talk soon. Thanks to Matt Rivets from Sleeping Giants for joining us. And, uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll talk to you next Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Oh, remember when I used to also be, always come for the outro? That's right. Yeah. It was nice. Like Sometimes, old times. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Okay. Let's uh we're going to go do some ads now. All right. Ads. Bye guys. All right. Bye everyone.